Did you know North Carolina was their first home to the English settlers in the New World? They settled on Roanoke Island in 1585. The settlement didn't survive long, though. When a supply ship came back in 1590, the village had been deserted, and its inhabitants were never seen or heard from again. It's one of history's greatest mysteries. Welcome to the Lore of the South. South. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? It's been a minute, y'all. Um, I survived my surgery. I had my post-op appointment today and everything is healing well. All the biopsies came back normal, so that was fantastic news. And the doctor said probably in about another two weeks, I'll be golden. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I think I can already tell a difference. I think I have maybe even a little bit more energy. I go to the hematologist next week and we'll see what my iron levels look like. But I have a feeling I'm gonna be heading towards the good side of things. I feel it y'all, I feel it. Yeah, the only really after effects like, took about a week and a half to feel human again. I just tried to stay unconscious for that first week. Have y'all ever had your schedules flip on you? Like, guys, I'm up until like 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning and then went to sleep all day long. It's not working out for me. I really need some daytime hours. So if y'all have any tips or tricks on getting back to a regular schedule, y'all pass them along. Let's see what else. We gotta play catch up, guys. Like I said, it's been a minute. Um... Producer Mike has, he's hired his youngest brother to help on the Pepperidge Farm route, and that's going good. They are really enjoying working together, and um, baby bro is a quick study. He's picked it up really quick, but y'all know what? That means Kelly's out of a job. (laughs) I am now, I guess, a full-time podcaster, guys. Uh, um, I guess that means no more excuses about having late shows, huh? Oh, our kids. Let's see. Our oldest is still job hunting. Um, have any of y'all seen this trend lately? So many places advertising openings, but then they never seem to fill them. It's weird. And our oldest, Jay, they're on the spectrum and super high functioning, super smart kid. Just a little awkward. Um, but yeah, so they're still looking for a job. I've been looking for months. Um, If y'all know of any resources for someone on the spectrum who's looking for a job, send those my way too. Um, Middle kid Hayden, um, he is currently touring Europe with some of his classmates for his senior trip. And y'all, we had a lot of help getting him over there. Um, He volunteered and we had lots of family and friends come through with donations to help him get there. And let me tell you, this kid, he really earned this trip. He's a blessing. He is a good kid, sweet kid, smart kid, considerate kid, and you don't see that a lot in teenagers, or maybe we see it more than we give them credit for, you know? But yeah, they're doing like a behind the Iron Curtain kind of tour thing. They're in Budapest, Krakow, Prague, and then Berlin, and they go to a sustainability conference while they're in Berlin where they get to meet with kids from all over the world and come up with ideas for a better future, basically. 
but he's really into like the post-World War II kind of communism, Bay of Pigs, Missile Crisis kind of era stuff. So it's been right up his alley. And then our youngest is interviewing at our tech school up the road over in Live Oak for their surgical tech program. So cross your fingers for her. So hopefully she'll get into it. I'm sure she will. Everybody loves her. She's a charmer. Y'all may hear that. We're having a thunderstorm right now. Your typical three o'clock Florida summer thunderstorm. Anything else? Let's see. It just seems like it's been forever since I wrote and recorded one of these. Um, if you missed us, check out the Patreon. Did y'all enjoy the Patreon episode that we released with producer Mike and I talking about the missing 411? They're a bit more loose. I'm sure you noticed that. Like we're a little bit more laid back with them. They're not as well organized as my written scripts that I put out on the regular feed. Um, But if you did enjoy it and you want extra content, check it out. $3 a month. Get at least... um, probably three extra episodes a month I believe because we do two recaps and then I try to do like a, what I call like a field trip episode out of the south episode something that goes along with the theme of our podcast but maybe not quite fit in with all with mostly the southern stuff that we cover so like I said as little as three dollars a month check it out and it helps us we've almost covered the cost y'all almost we're so close to breaking even um okay how about some history making news this comes from ancient origins an archaeological site in oregon known as the rock shelter has pushed the date of human occupation in north america back more than 2,000 years from what was earlier thought as 16,000 year ago habitation to 18,000 years. A scraper tool that had been used by these first Americans still had traces of blood on it. The archeologists were able to sample the ancient material and it was found to have belonged to a long extinct cousin to the North American bison. Other artifacts like camel's teeth and plant residue were found in what had one time been the people's cook fires. It will be interesting to keep up with this story and see what else the archaeologists might discover. Now, how about some old southern true crime? This story I heard about from the YouTube channel Briefcase. I thought that was kind of a clever name. You know, carry a briefcase. It's also a briefcase because they're only like 16 minutes long or so. But anyways, I digress. Give them a follow if you're into historical true crime. He covers both Europe and North America. And if you like his content, be sure to comment on his videos that um, Laura of the South sent you his way. This story takes place in rural 1830s North Carolina. So welcome to episode 67, Frankie Silver. Cold-blooded killer or woman done wrong? Okay, and we got a trigger warning, y'all. I mentioned murder, dismemberment, um, wicking effect, and child rape. No matter how briefly I might glance over a topic, I still like to give y'all a heads up. Frances Stewart, known to her family and friends as Frankie, was born in either 1814 or 1815. 
Her parents relocated the family to a small mountain town of Kona, North Carolina. They settled just over the ridge from the Silver family, who had a son who was just a year older than Frankie, by the name of Charlie. Charlie's mama died giving birth to him, though his father would soon remarry and Charlie would become the oldest child amongst several half-siblings. I imagine Charlie and Frankie probably grew up together playing at different gatherings and such. And that childhood friendship turned into more as they grew up. People in the mountain community thought that the two were perfect for each other. He was tall with dark hair and eyes and a fair complexion. He was known to be a great entertainer at parties, whether it was with his storytelling or his musical talents. He was also known to tip the old jug every now and again as well, if you know what I mean. Frankie was described by Charlie's brother Alfred as a lightly little woman. She was fair with bright eyes and counted as very pretty. She had charms and I had never seen a smarter woman. She could card and comb and spin three yards of cotton a day on that big wheel. Don't y'all think it's funny that how Charlie is described as a good time guy and Frankie is pretty charming and a hard worker? Charlie and Frankie married in 1830 at ages 18 and 19, which wouldn't have been too terribly young for this time period. Charlie's father, Jacob, gave the pair a cabin in the woods to live in on some of the silver land. The pair soon had a daughter that they named Nancy. Things seemed picture perfect at first, but the rumor mill started that Charlie was seeing a girl in the next town over. And y'all, this, of course, did not sit very well. And good time Charlie was, like I said before, known to tip the bottle maybe a bit too often. And maybe not like how smart his pretty little wife was. But in the 1830s, this just would have been Frankie's lot in life. She didn't have any recourse. She was her husband's property. Now, there are a couple theories as to what led to the events on the night of December 22, 1831. One thought was that Frankie's family, the Stewarts, were planning to move further west, and she wanted to go with them, but Charlie was against it. The next theory is that Charlie was sent out to fetch home some liquor for the upcoming Christmas festivities. Charlie then proceeded to tip some more bottles on his way back home to his and Frankie's cabin. When he reached the cabin, he was roaring drunk and violent. It's then that Frankie picked up an axe and sent it into Charlie's head. Charlie was killed instantly. And what the heck was Frankie going to do? It would be just after Christmas that people started getting suspicious. Frankie reported that Charlie had gone out hunting and had never returned. A neighbor, seeing that Frankie and baby Nancy were away from the cabin, decided to go and have a look-see. And what he found was awfully disturbing. There were pools of congealed blood on the cabin floor. What appeared to be some human remains in the fireplace along with some sooty and greasy ash. And I want to interject here and explain what that greasy residue probably was. 
It takes super high heat to incinerate a body. Cremation takes place at around 2,000 degrees. And even then, human bones have to go through a milling process to make sure everything is turned into a powder. So y'all, there is no way Frankie could have got that fireplace hot enough to incinerate Charlie. And that greasy soot, that's what happens when body fat melts. If someone has a high fat content, something called the wick effect can take place and cause the body to burn for longer and at higher temperature. That's part of the spontaneous human combustion theory. But young Charlie was lean, so his body fat just left behind a greasy mess. So after the neighbor discovered the mess in the cabin, he had a look around the yard and he also discovered Charlie's head and torso. Needless to say, the neighbor immediately reported what he had found. On January 9th, 1832, Frankie, her mother Barbara, and brother Blackston were all arrested and jailed in nearby Morgantown. On the 13th, Frankie's father managed to get Barbara and Blackston released for unlawful detainment. Charges against them were dropped, but Frankie was still held. And on January 17th, that came Frankie's court date. She was not allowed to take the stand to defend herself, and in a weird twist, her attorney had her plead not guilty, and they didn't use self-defense. They think this was done in hopes of the state having to prove her guilt. On March 29th, Frankie's jury came back deadlocked and asked to rehear the witnesses. Permission was granted, and when the jury came back, it was unanimous. Frankie was found guilty. It's feared that much of the witness accounts might have been changed during the retellings of the events before and after the night of Charlie's murder. Frankie was sentenced to hang that July. An appeal was filed in June, but it was thrown out. And it just so happened that just as the hanging date was drawing near, Judge Swain was thrown from his horse and all court proceedings were suspended for the rest of the summer. Then y'all, get this. Swain was elected governor of North Carolina. So time goes on and we move into May of the next year, 1833. Frankie has been jailed this whole time. Sentiment in Morgantown was moving towards wanting a full pardon for Frankie. The ladies of the town had started a writing campaign to Governor Swain. Several of Frankie's jurors even wrote on her behalf, all pleading Frankie's case. Well, y'all, it wasn't enough for Frankie's dad. He and another man hatched a plan to break Frankie out of the jailhouse, and they did so on May 18, 1833. Frankie maintained her freedom for eight short days and was then recaptured and returned to her cell. Even with the escape, Frankie's neighbors were still coming to her defense and asking for the teen mother's life to be spared. Their words fell on deaf ears when it came to the new governor. He wanted to portray himself as a man of justice and hard on crime. So the letters and pleas went unheard. 
Another thought behind the old judge's actions was that he had a healthy respect for the Silver family and for the amount of land they owned. He'd not want to do anything that would upset old Jacob Silver. July 9th rolls around, and the governor claims that all the appeals had arrived too late to save young Frankie, though the letters were all dated with plenty of time for Swain to have interjected. July 12, 1933. Frankie was taken to some say a great big old live oak tree just outside of town to be hanged. Some say that a scaffold was erected to see that justice was carried out. Either way, all present said that Frankie went quietly and bravely to her death. She was only 19 years old and left behind a toddler. Frankie's dad sat dutifully nearby with a coffin in the bed of a wagon, waiting for the deed to be done so that he could take her home to her final resting place. But he didn't make it very far due to the extreme July heat and humidity. Poor little Frankie's body immediately began to decompose, and her father had to bury his daughter behind a roadside tavern just a couple of miles outside of town. Her grave remained unmarked until the early 1950s when a marker was placed where they think that she was laid to rest. The marker has her name spelled wrong on it. Charlie's remains can be found in the Kona Baptist Church graveyard, though his marker doesn't mark the exact location of his body. Apparently, the family kind of just buried him as they found the bits and pieces. Those plants were marked with natural stone they sourced from the surrounding area. Now, what about baby Nancy? What happened to her? That's debated, because she doesn't have much of a paper trail until she's grown and married. From what I can see in the research, she was kind of tossed back and forth between the Silver and Stewart families. In some instances, it's said she was raised by a family near Macon County. She married in 1850 to a David Parker. They had several children over the next 10 years or so, and they were happy ones until David was killed in the Civil War. The family was then split up. The kids were cared for by relatives, just like Nancy once had been. Then in the 1870s, Nancy remarried to a William Robinson. The couple had one son together named Commodore. The articles I read didn't say when this happened, but it's rumored that William forced himself on one of Nancy's daughters, and old William was never seen again. Nancy then goes back to using her first husband's name, Parker, and that's what's inscribed on her tombstone. And that, y'all, is the sad tale of Frankie Silver. Side notes, the mom and the feminist in me almost always wants to side with the woman in these sorts of stories, unless evidence is given otherwise, but I'm really not sure what to think about this one. Like the story of Alice Riley, I'm firmly team Alice. I think she was continuously abused by men and paid for it with her life. But in this case, I just don't know if there is enough evidence to say that this was a justifiable homicide or not. Either way, Frankie probably didn't get her fair shake. 
and Nancy certainly didn't. And now we're going to move on to Oldest Buildings by State, brought to us by the Discoverer blog. And today we have reached Mississippi and Missouri. Mississippi's building dates back to about 1757 and is the Lapointe Krebs House in Pascagoula. Yeah, we're gonna have to like revisit Pascagoula. There's all kinds of old and creepy stuff that happens in that area. Um, today the house is a museum and is undergoing extensive restoration. Missouri's oldest home was built in 1735 and then rebuilt in 1787 after some flooding. The home is of post and seal construction and was owned by Louis Bulduc. He was a wealthy merchant, miner, and planter. The old house can be found in St. Genevieve on the Mississippi River. And y'all, I got a shout out to give. Apparently, y'all's kids love me. And I love that. There aren't too many things out there that kids and parents can watch or listen to together. And I am more than happy that this podcast can be one of those things. So, hey, Santiago. I've known your Meemaw forever. Thank you so much for listening. And also, welcome to Hufflepuff, kid. We're truly the best of the houses. Um, I told your Meemaw, once I'm out and about again, I'll be sure to drop off a surprise for you. So be on the lookout. I'll be making a delivery soon. Y'all be sure to follow us on social media for pics from the show and for show updates. If you really like the show, again, y'all, check out that Patreon. We post about three extra episodes on there a month to show recaps where producer Mike and I sit down and discuss whatever the current episode was on the regular feed. And as I mentioned before, like the regular episode that we upload to Patreon will be like a straight out of the South episode. A lot of times they'll be in England or if I run across a story from up North or somewhere else, we cover that kind of stuff over on the Patreon. Unless it's a holiday, then, then I'll do whatever on the main feed. Also, you get commercial free um, uploads to the Patreon when we get so lucky as to pick up commercials. And y'all's help, it really, it really does help. But you know what? Not everybody can swing Patreon, and if you can't, how about just leaving us a five-star review and a couple of kind words? We're sitting firmly at a 4.6, and I would love to see five stars, y'all. If you do leave a review, I'll be sure to read it out here on the show and give you a shout-out. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at laurathesouth at gmail.com. To find us on Patreon, it's the Lore of the South. Just search that in the little Patreon search box. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Lore of the South. Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode. Welcome back to the Patreon. This is, I guess, going to be one of our off-week episodes. This oh, we'll little, see. We'll see what happens. This little, this little thing I have drummed up for um, producer Mike. I almost called him Professor Mike. Oh, mm-hmm. just gave him a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'm ready for that promotion. No, no. we're putting you back down to producer. You're not mm-hmm. Professor Mike. No. Um, but so is that, I is, hold on. Is that like Dr. Dre? Because <laughs> I bet hadn't somebody given him like an honorary doctorate by now? Surely, uh, maybe. surely they have. But with the help of one of my teacher friends, 
because y'all, I didn't know how to make a quiz, but that's what we're fixing to do. My um, producer, Mike, is fixing to take a Patreon quiz. And this one is going to be based on either Did You Knows or episode 62, News of the Weird. So if y'all want, y'all play along. Maybe I'll post it. Maybe I can see if I can upload it to Patreon and then y'all can like click along as um oh, as, as, he, as as producer Mike takes this test and see how he does. Y'all ready to get started? Let's go. All right. Okay. In which state was the tow truck invented? Oh, geez. I don't remember that one. Okay, you want me to give you the options? Uh, I made it I made it multiple oh, you choice. Oh, made it multiple choice. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's so, not a lot of southern states, so I should be able to get this. Yeah, what do we have, 13? Yep. 11 or 13? I don't know, 13. Lucky number. Okay, so in which state is the tow, was the tow truck invented? Was it Texas, Georgia, Oklahoma, or Tennessee? Tow truck. I think Tennessee. I think it would be like a mountain thing. Ding, ding, ding. If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com.